Hey, this is Trice Brown, and welcome to Sweet 1111. Uh, this week, we are talking with Reagan Moss about a conversation she had with some university officials. So, Reagan, if you could kind of just uh, explain who these people were and what you talked about briefly. Great, yeah. So, I met with Judith White and Catherine Weathers, two university officials, as you mentioned. So, Judith White is the coordinator for violence prevention and survivor advocacy. So, she works in the health promotion and wellness office. Mm-hmm. And she predominantly oversees Green Dot, which is bystander intervention training, and then also Safe Harbor. And Safe Harbor is a 24-7 confidential resource for students who have survived power-based personal violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and her office also in part works with Catherine Mother's office, so Title IX. Um, Catherine is the senior deputy Title IX coordinator and also the assistant director of the EEO Title IX office. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sat down to discuss the roles in their offices and what their offices can do for students. Um, but then we tried to build upon that more and really understand what the true experiences of Auburn victim survivors are and what that has taught them about how we should respond to sexual violence. Okay, cool. Uh, well, excited to get into that. Uh, please stay with us. We will be right back. Hey, this is Collins Keith, podcast writer for The Plainsman. If you like this podcast and would like to support the organization and our team, you can visit our website at theplainsman.com and click on the button in the upper right-hand corner that says Donate. You'll be supporting over 127 years of local, editorially independent journalism right here at Auburn. Thank you so much in advance, and now back to the show. I think when someone has been violated, a choice has been taken away from them, and they've been robbed of, you know, maybe some dignity, maybe, you know their sense of choice because something that they didn't want to happen happened to them. And it's incredibly important to let them drive every step of what they want because they've already been, um, somebody has already taken away something from them. So when I was talking about Judith and Catherine, um, we were talking about how sexual violence doesn't happen in a vacuum. And when we're talking about victim survivor recovery, oftentimes the surrounding cultures, beliefs, Um, held by individual people or in relationships and in communities, those can be harmful towards that person and recovery. Mm -hmm. And so these two offices really try and help that person um, guide the process for recovery and give them a lot of choice and agency. So violence prevention offers a lot of different resources, right? So uh, students could request academic assistance. um, They might request help navigating the police department, or the student might request to make a report. But ultimately, violence prevention, they have all of these things that are available, but it's down to that particular student and what their particular needs are. Mm -hmm. And the student, based off of that, they choose how they want to navigate those services. Yeah. So just to to backtrack a little bit, you said that um, these victims of sexual violence are often um, failed by their... um, There's all these different factors that are that affect um, how they process and how they react to what happened to them. Uh, but could you, you said, you know, it's like they're the culture and like beliefs and relationships and stuff, but could you give like maybe a few examples of like what that actually looks like and like what kind of beliefs and what kind of relationships may like affect that? So one commonly held belief is that people shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. Mm-hmm. So um, if we're acknowledging that there has been sexual assault or that people are having sex in any capacity, 
Um, instead of focusing on the fact that someone was violated or mm-hmm. that something wrong happened in that sexual encounter, people are solely focused on the fact that that mm. goes against beliefs of like purity culture. Right. So they have like this shame of like, I've mm-hmm. done this bad thing when, and they're not like realizing it, like, no, this like terrible thing happened to you. Right. And regardless of like what a person individually believes about sex, that's never an excuse for someone else to force sex upon them. So mm-hmm. whether or not they think that they uh, should be having sex or if they want to have sex, that's, you know, it's never an excuse for someone to force sex onto them. Yeah. Um, and then I also think when people talk about sexual assault um, within a relationship, we have a, a lot of ideas that sex in relationships is purely consensual and that if you're mm. in a relationship, you must be having sex or right. that you want to have sex with each other. Mm. Or that it's always yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so when people come forward and they acknowledge how like a, um, someone they were on a date with um, assaulted them or their boyfriend or their girlfriend um, assaulted them, then we dismiss it because we're like, no, you're in a relationship. That can't happen. Mm-hmm. So... Let's say that there has been a sexual assault and it gets reported to, um, like, these investigative offices. What are, like, the sequence of events that go from there? Like, what happens next? Right. Um, So Catherine was talking about in the Title IX office. Obviously, they have protocol that they have to adhere to. Hmm. Um, But importantly, the process is um, victim-involved and, for the most part, victim-led. Right? So there can be, like... Typical things that are in place in the office that they have to adhere to because they are responding to, like, a federal law. Yeah. But ultimately, um, she was noting how everyone else is telling the victims how they should respond, and they're trying to tell the victim, no, you decide how you respond. Okay. You know, within the system of the Title IX office, they have a lot of choice. Mm. So what are some of those choices? Yeah. So if the student wants to, there are a lot of, like, supportive metrics. Um, So the office can help with, like, academic accommodations. Um, the student could move forward with like an investigation or a hearing, but mm-hmm. if they don't want to, there's also the option to have an informal resolution. So okay. the example she gave is a student might say, I don't want to move forward with a hearing for whatever reason. The student doesn't want to move forward with a hearing, yeah. which obviously they're entitled to that decision. Um, mm-hmm. but they might say instead, I want the perpetrator to go to counseling yeah, or I want the perpetrator to not be able to be in the same class as me. And so they're able to work through with um, that student how they want to feel supported, like, in their recovery process. I think one of the um, biggest disconnects that I, that I see from my office is a lack of understanding about a survivor's desire to be known to the community or, you know, reach out to police or to have Title IX. I think, you know, when they've lost a part of themselves, you know, some people get mad and they want justice. Other people, you know, just want to get through it. And we talk a lot about what is important to your healing. Because going through the legal system, going through Title IX, isn't easy. It takes a lot out of you. So we always try to talk about what would help your healing. And if reporting would help your healing, then you should do it. But, you know, you have to take care of yourself first. Again, it's survivor-driven, and their healing is what is most important to me, and so most times, it's it's very daunting um, going through the legal system, and it opens up the survivor to scrutiny, to comments, and that's a lot for somebody who's already been through a traumatic event. 
that can be a lot for them to process. For some people, they want justice and, you know, and that's great. Uh, I have these conversations with uh, uh, victims often where I say, you are not under any obligation to move forward right now. You can take your time and when you feel that you are ready, if you come to that point and you want to move forward, uh, you can do that at that time. And because we understand that. And that's, I would just want the student body to know we do understand how this impacts people and how it uh, changes their life and that they're not necessarily ready to move forward. I'd like to highlight one thing that Catherine just mentioned, which is the neurobiology of trauma. And so I think people have an expectation of what, how someone should present if they've been sexually assaulted, which isn't true. Or, you know, why didn't you fight back? Or, you know, or somebody might say that they were raped, but they seem fine. Or they might, you know, still be going to bars or showing, you know, sexual behavior. And that's all normal, but there's not, I don't think there's a, a general understanding. And, you know, freezing is the most common thing. So, you know, fight or flight, that's, more common if it's somebody you don't know. But if it's somebody you know, and it's, you know, it's like the frog in the boiling water, and you just can't understand how this is happening, and, you know, it's the most natural reaction is to freeze when you're going through that, especially with somebody you know. So I think there may not be a lot of sensitivity sometimes because people are confused because they just don't know. So Reagan, uh, if you could just kind of explain uh, what she was talking about, where she's talking about the neurobiology of trauma and how um, victims often don't present in the way that we expect them to and behave the way that we we believe that they should after they've been sexually assaulted. Right. Um, yeah. So in in response to adversity, um, there's like a trauma response, right, which might present differently for different types of traumas. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, when we're talking about the neurobiology of trauma, uh, the prefrontal cortex doesn't function efficiently. Um, okay. So that's at lower like activity levels. So yeah. that's the part of your brain that has like your personality, um, your mm -hmm. ability to reason, um, the ability to be empathetic and to communicate and to build um, relationships with other people. And in response to trauma, that part of your brain is less active. Mm -hmm. um, and then in contrast, the limbic system um, intensifies. So that's the more reptilian part of the brain. Um, so it's purely more survival reactions. So this part of the brain is like, am I safe? Am I loved? Trying to... Um, basically ground you and make sure that that's like the typical like fight flight or freeze that we all think of okay um in response to trauma um the reptilian part of the brain might result in like hyper vigilance or anxiety um and like irritability um but at the same mm -hmm. time there might be like feelings of hopelessness shame like numbing mm -hmm. loss of affect um inability to reason and so that's what judith was talking about when she was saying you know we expect people in response to trauma, um, to like completely shut down or to mm -hmm. not go to bars anymore. Um, but like the reasoning parts of your brain aren't necessarily working. So I'm, I'm, I'm personally trying to understand like people going out to bars and stuff. Like how does that like exactly fit into the whole like mm -hmm. them not being able to reason? And is that like a part of them wanting to fix? Well, so I'm saying, to me, it could be, I mean, it could be more victim specific. It could okay. be 
you know, trying to just carry on with actions that they might have done otherwise. Okay. You no, know, like we're trying to paint a picture of like how exactly people should respond. And it's like person specific. Like there could be pretty general things that we see because of the neurobiology of trauma. Like some of the things I mentioned, like mm-hmm. mistrust and anxiety, hypervigilance, like feelings of betrayal, maybe some like self-destructive behavior. Um, but also ultimately that person is trying to make sense of what happened to them yeah. and to recover and like respond to it. And so it's not always necessarily going to be the same from person to person. And so I think what Judith was noting is that we try and say, oh, if someone is assaulted, they're not going to want to go to bars, they're not going to want to drink, or they're not going to want to hang out with that person again. And we can't necessarily say how that person's going to respond because it's specific to them. And so I think... You know, students may not know how to process information they're getting because they don't understand. You know, we, we have things in movies and TV that, you know, law and order that dramatizes like what a survivor should look like or how they should respond or what they should do during the attack. So, Reagan, what she, essentially she's saying is that TV um, tells us um, all of these, di- like it spells everything out for us, right? It says like, who are the perpetrators? Who are the victims? What do each of those people look like? And in what situations do these things occur? Um, but often, you know, the spelling's incorrect, right? It is very different. Right. I mean, because it's, in a sense, like media and TV, like they're reflective of people. Like mm-hmm. people are the ones making these things. So yeah. it's reflecting what our beliefs are. Yeah. What culture is telling us. It's yeah. all fed into Right. It's not necessarily TV. the truth. Exactly. Exactly. But it's it's still reflective of like common dialogue or common Mm -hmm. beliefs. But then at the same time, like we're interacting and learning from those things, like a constant like feedback loop between the two, like we're informing them, but they're informing us and potentially in really harmful ways. And so kind of what Judith is mentioning is that, you know, it tells us this, it, it gives like one, one specific archetype of what sexual violence looks like. And when something doesn't fit that specific account shown in like tv then we Mm -hmm. dismiss that or we don't necessarily like victims might not necessarily recognize that they were victimized because they're told no this is what victimization looks like so what you experience no that's not that Mm. yeah so like in um the show like 13 reasons why right um they have the the main character um gets raped at some point and the perpetrator is this um you know, this big jock, he's very, very mean. You're definitely, like, the writers want you to hate that character. But that often isn't really the case with the perpetrators, right? Right, I mean, because it could be, yeah, someone that you think is nasty and gross and they're, like, mean or they're aggressive or whatever. Or it could be someone that you have a relationship with. And Mm -hmm. so the narratives in TV don't really account for social and like relational complexity that are actually surrounding sexual violence. Mm. And the fact that it's not these like necessarily, it could be, but not necessarily like these big, mean, aggressive people. It's our peers and it's people that we odds are interact with and we know and we have relationships with. Yeah. It's not stranger danger, right? It's, it's people you know. Right. And obviously like there, we know of accounts of it. Yeah. But no, in reality, most people know the person that perpetrated them. Mm. In our office, we don't ever say, I mean, of course, no means no. I mean, that is old school. We are, yes means yes. So going back to Judith's point about 
someone being silent, silent is not silence is not consent. So when there are signs that no means no, uh, that could be re-traumatizing to somebody who didn't say no. Then they think, oh gosh, mm-hmm. I am to blame. Uh, I should have done something. Um, they're already probably hearing that from folks, but they don't need to see it, mm-hmm. hear it hear it and see it from other students who actually believe they're doing something good, but just aren't as up to date as where things are, which is more progressive. Mm-hmm. And those are actually our standards. If they read the Title IX policy, they will see a very long and involved uh, explanation of what consent is. And consent is, it's very clear, or it's very, uh, it's not just as simple as no means no. Yeah, so what Catherine was saying was building off of what um, Judith was saying earlier and how many people freeze or they don't speak, but the slogan, no means no, once again, is feeding off of the idea of what we think assault is, is that mm-hmm. people are like screaming no or that they're saying no. And it's in reality, people not, might not be saying anything at all. Yeah. Um, or, you know, it, it might be a little more gray than that, but at the end of the day, if that person mm-hmm. is not giving an affirmative and ongoing, like enthusiastic yes, that's a no. Yeah. And so Catherine's notes that how, you know, if we continue with the idea that no means no, ultimately we're, we're blaming victims who don't speak. We're yeah. victim blaming. So it's like, it seems like a very like simple difference, right? Like no means no versus yes means yes. But in reality, like there is a huge difference, right? Because like in a no, in a world where like the rule is no means no, no action is done or like said in order for consent to be given, right? So it's kind of implied. We're like, as long as they don't say no, they're saying yes. Exactly. Um, yeah. But with a more true because of like what we know about how people freeze, and that's just like their response to being in these traumatic situations, um, is that well, no, you had like some action has to be done to give consent. It's not something that has to be taken away. Exactly. Yeah. So if it's not. And if enthusiastic yes to that sexual act at mm-hmm. that time, at that part of their body, with that person, yeah. it is not consent. So if somebody was sexually assaulted by somebody, you know, the normal thought, I think, is they would never have anything to do with that person again. And that's not always the case. They could have consensual sex after that. Sometimes that's to make them feel better about that prior incident mm-hmm. and to think that really didn't happen. You know, I wasn't sexually assaulted. It was consensual. You know, they try to make it make themselves feel better about the situation. Assaults happen everywhere. It's really sad, but it's true. And it can, it can be stranger danger. It's more often um, somebody you know. And I think we don't want to just categorize any one group or any one place as like the bad place because it can happen anywhere with the person you least expect. And so I think sometimes identifying one single place, say like one frat, might give you a false sense of security that anywhere else you are, you're safe. Uh, So Regan, I guess kind of explain what she means about um, how, you know, like one frat being the bad place. Right. Right, so I think, I mean, importantly, Greek life does precipitate a lot of assault and rape. Mm-hmm. And that's more so because of, like, commonly held beliefs that are really, really pervasive in Greek culture, like okay. misogyny, 
homophobia, these hierarchies of power. Mm-hmm. Um, you could see in the Greek system, even in how they like rank themselves compared to each other or mm-hmm. ideas of like in order to be um, like a pledge, there's a lot of like harassment and like hazing, right? Yeah. Um, but what she's saying is even outside of that, when we say, oh, it's this one frat, it creates a false sense of security because we're saying, if you don't go to that frat, you're going to be safe. Yeah. Instead of acknowledging, one, what's actually driving violence at that particular frat. Which can but, exist in other places. Exactly. Exactly. But more so than that, it's like, well, then if violence is happening outside of that frat, like, is that, are we still going to acknowledge that that happened too? you know, and mm. recognize. So like we like construct this narrative of like where this happens and like what's a part of. I guess what's a part of, like, the issue. And then when it's outside of that, it's you're saying that it's, like... Right. We kind of, like, marginalize those experiences or those mm-hmm. experiences are kind of, like, glossed over or yeah. hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, Even to, like, either to, like, the general public or to the individual who's trying to make sense of what happened. Exactly. Exactly. We're obscuring what's really going on because we're so hyper-focused on one particular thing mm-hmm. and an effort to make ourselves feel safe. But it's falsely placed security. So I think we need we need to identify where the gaps are, where the gaps are in the understanding. If it if it does come down to a lack of understanding about consent, if there is uh, misconceptions about what a healthy relationship should look like, we need to look into that because I don't th- we can't keep the focus too narrow because you know that doesn't mean that bad stuff isn't happening elsewhere. You know I know we know we have our anecdotes, but it's the students who know where the gaps are. Is it a lack of education? Is it a lack of sexual sexual education? Because I know I feel that students have been failed before they even get here, and then they're for the first time thrown into this environment where they have all this um, autonomy and they have all this freedom, and but they're still not haven't been given the tools to use it, you know, safely and effectively. Yeah. So I mean, Judith talking about how students have been failed before they even get here. So. In the state of Alabama, for forever, you weren't allowed to teach sex education. Mm-hmm. And then you'd be allowed to teach sex education, but only if it was abstinence only. Right. And now you don't have to make it abstinence only, but it's not mandated. And it's, like, it's all very wishy-washy instead of the acknowledgement that, like, no, sex education, like, people are deserving and, like, entitled to the knowledge about, like, what what is happening within their own bodies and yeah. like what healthy relationships are. And it's consistently shown that when people are given sex education, like there are lower rates of STDs and STIs, lower rates of teen pregnancy, people can build healthier relationships. It mediates occurrences of sexual violence. Um, but if, if we don't even come to college with that knowledge, we're already set back. And so it's difficult for these offices to even start working on, like, response, you know, or intervention because we're basically set back, like, 10 years in yeah. what our understanding is. When we're talking about alcohol, we're talking about one uh, risk and the increase in risk to being incapacitated, which then makes one vulnerable to somebody who's got bad intentions. The other part of alcohol is the perpetrators. They may say it may be that that person would not have sexually assaulted somebody had they been sober, but alcohol allowed them to act in a way that they wouldn't have. And they have people who could have 
help stop them by saying, no, you're not leaving with that person. If it is somebody they know that, and, and they're not getting the support from friends, friends may say, oh, really? You think so? You know, did that really happen? I can't believe he did that. They don't want to bring, lose their friend group. And so that is a, a real issue that is a concern with people who have been sexually assaulted and are the victim of sexual assault or relationship violence to be able to come forward because they feel like they're going to be ostracized. So they're saying that um, we have these like ideas of how victims are supposed to behave and how those people be like, oh, I'm so sad, I'm shutting down, I'm going to lay in my room for the next, like, three days or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's once again, telling victims how they should respond. But then also when she's talking about the fact that like, um, people are going to their friends and they're like doubting their story instead of trusting people and trusting the experiences that they've had Mm -hmm. and supporting their recovery. Um, Mm -hmm. we're continually reflecting our ideas of what assault is. Okay. Onto our peers. Yeah. And so when they come forward, it's like really hurtful for them to be like, well, actually, I don't think that's what that was. When they're like, they're trying to make sense of this and they're trying to like come to you, I guess. Right. Right. So, I mean, drawing on what we were saying earlier and how the relationships um, that people are in, even outside of like that, the violent thing that happened, Mm -hmm. um, sexual violence, um, the relationships outside of that can be really harmful when this person is trying to recover. So the people that they're going to to try and confide in are telling them that they're wrong yeah. in in how they view the experience. They're telling them that they're wrong and even like their account of it. You know, when they themselves lived it, they themselves know what happened and should be able to speak to it. But instead, we're telling people, no, that's not the reality. Because mm-hmm. once again, it's not fitting what we think the reality should be. Right. It's a, about creating a community of respect for people, for each other. And so when you're in a conversation and uh, misogynistic comments are being made, people need to be able to have the courage to, you know, speak up and say something. That's a green dot, you know? Um, and you have to, there are people who have views that are detrimental to having a respectful community. And uh, you can either change them or you can push them out. And so, and I mean push them out of the, the, the social group, right? Um, because there is that, I think, that does lead to views about how you treat people then. And it also homophobic views and comments and thoughts and then it's always oh I didn't I'm not a homophobe oh I'm not a racist I'm not a racist I'm not a misogynist and um then don't say things that are racist misogynistic or homophobic you know don't joke like that because it it is um hurtful and it does um and I do believe that is a power issue that is a power uh, you know, trying to keep uh, a certain power over other people. The problem is that does bleed into then how you treat them. Yeah, and the same thing, I just feel like our country has been founded on, you know, heterosexual white men, often, you know, 
based on religious beliefs. And it takes time to kind of unpack that. And um, I think we're starting to turn things around, but it takes, it takes a long time. Yeah, so I mean, a few things off of what Catherine was saying. So obviously, right, there's the note that how our country was founded um, was pretty problematic, and that's going to carry out like generation to generation and take a long time to overcome. But then at the same time, showing that it's the very people that founded our country, the people that were in power, that Mm -hmm. were excusing rape culture or participating in rape culture, or they were passing policies Mm-hmm. that reflected rape culture. And so that's going to be embedded into other areas of our lives. Right. Um, so like these people who have cr- like, were really like the helped pass on these beliefs that we currently have that mm-hmm. influence rape culture about like, you know, um, being like sexually pure mm-hmm. or um, the idea that um, sex and within marriage is always consensual. Mm-hmm. Things like that are um, influencing um how rape culture has evolved and maintained itself. Right, right. And then also within that same vein, the people, like sexual violence is a power veins violence, right? So the person is trying to either like employ previously existing power dynamics or they're trying to make a power dynamic that ultimately like favors the perpetrator. Yeah. And so that's what we're seeing again with like how our country was founded. That it's like these people in power taking advantage of other people. Mm. But that's been consistent across people in power, like over the course of our country's history. So, I mean, like Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Grover Cleveland, like you can look up like lists and lists and lists of people like Newt Gingrich, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, like JFK, like all of these people that were in power that were accused and um, in many cases, like found guilty of sexual violence, mm-hmm. but that person had power. Um, and so they were able to take advantage of someone else. Yeah, but ultimately, they're still in power, and they're still allowing their beliefs that are shown in rape culture um, to influence the policies, and they're excusing rape culture, and they're furthering it. And then at the same time, other people, when you see someone in power getting away with it, then you yourself get away with it, and you continue to participate in it, and you know that there aren't going to be any consequences for it, and you don't see anything wrong with it. Because the very people that are leading the country Mm. and, you know, I mean, policies aren't totally establishing a culture, Mm -hmm. but they're reflective of it and they can either make it better or make it worse. And when the person in power is consistently making it worse, Mm. then rape culture is going to persist. Yeah. And it's not even really seen as like like a personal, like criminal issue it's more like you know when all of these politicians are accused of these things it's treated it's like a simple like political cudgel again mm-hmm. um and how yeah 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 i mean but exactly yeah if they're if they're consistently getting away with it then you're like oh well yeah there's nothing wrong with it cool yeah they don't get in trouble for it i don't get in trouble for it or yeah. you just like on a more basic level if you see it so pervasively then you might not even recognize that you don't want to get away with it or that you want to get away with it, it's just more so like that you don't even see anything wrong with it to begin with. You don't even recognize that what you're doing is something that we could argue that you're getting away with. Yeah. Well, thank you, Reagan. Uh, you did a really great job with this, really great conversation. Um, from the Auburn Plainsman, this has been Sweet 1111. I'm Trice Brown. And I'm Reagan Moss. And we're signing off. We'll see you next week. <laughs>